There were like two very, very, very broad demographics of people that when I told them I was starting a canned fish company, they got it. And it was either, you know, foodie people, yeah. trendy people, you know, people were getting bone app, et cetera, or it was first generation Americans. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, I welcome in Becca Milstein, the CEO and founder of Fishwife, one of my favorite brands in food. You probably have picked up her, her tins of, of salmon and mackerel and anchovies at Whole Foods or your favorite small food store. Well, we have Becca in to tell us all about the story of Fishwife, the founding of it, the, the early struggles, and really what it's like to, to run a small food brand in today's day and age, how she's duking it out online and offline. I really love catching up with Becca Milstein, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Becca Milstein, welcome to This Is Taste. Oh, thank you, Matt. I'm so, so excited to be here. I love meeting you. I've had your products for years, it feels like, and you've been in my life, and I really want to get into Fishwife and, and a bit of your story and your journey but first, like, the question is, is, like, when did you realize Tim Fish was such an opportunity? Yeah, it was really at the height of COVID. I think, like, the precursor when the seed was sown for Fishwife was when I lived abroad in Spain. I was living in southern Spain in Granada and traveling ex- almost exclusively around Andalusia and then Portugal as yeah. well. And that's where I had my, you know, revelation that there is another tinned fish in the world and it is much, much more delicious and much more artisanal and has such a beautiful culture around it than what I grew up eating. Then like Starkiss? Then Starkiss, which is all that I was familiar with. Yeah. Being from New Hampshire, you know, I grew up eating tuna fish sandwiches and that was the only use case that I was familiar with for a canned fish. So I had my eyes open then. And then, you know, five years went by and it was COVID. And I think I had just sensed in my peer group that there was a tremendous amount of interest in this category. I had started seeing friends like post on Instagram, like having these little tin fish moments. This is again during COVID when people are like right. locked at 2020, home. And it was like the Ortiz. It was like some of the imported brands from Portugal. Or it was like Trader Joe's. And I oh, was yeah. like, there's got to be something not to like throw shade. And they have some great products, but like. Oh, we can do that. Trader Joe's is, is, is <laughs> not is not our friend There's some on the show. Are, yeah. Okay. Great. 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 Um, <laughs> so anyway, I was like, there's got to be something else out there. There really was not any American owned, incredible tin fish brand that was high quality, you know, responsible sourcing, beautiful, above all beautiful branding, because mm-hmm. that was my background. I was from, you know, I'd worked in the music industry doing brand partnerships, brand marketing. Um, and that's really what I saw is mm-hmm. like, I looked at this, you know, pretty huge category. It's nearly a $6 billion category in the U.S. Um, Just in the U.S. it's six. Wow. Yes. Almost six. It's like five something. Um, wow. But that had not experienced any premiumization and like over the past 10 years, we've watched every single food vertical be premiumized. And it's like, why has this? Why has this one? So six billy for, is it mostly tuna? Though? It is. It's like 80% tuna. 80% tuna. Yeah. But then you think about like sardines, like sardines have definitely been part of our culture. I feel like you think about anchovies, but you think, and I want to say think this is like before Fishwife and mm. other brands have copied to kind of enter the space. But like we are cooking with anchovies, obviously, in, in Italian cooking and, mm-hmm. and some other Spanish cooking. But yeah, it didn't have the premiumization as you're talking about. And it didn't have a, like a community around it, which is what I think, which is why Fishwife has experienced great organic growth is because, you know, 
I could feel that there was obsession around this category in a way that there's rarely, you know, people aren't like obsessed with like bread or cereal, hmm. um, but people are obsessed with with tin fish. Yeah. You know, not as many people as, you know, it started off as a smaller-ish audience, but like there was an obsession there. And that's really what you, what I personally was very attracted to as, you know, yeah. an aspiring founder was As like, a founder, but somebody who you're recognizing um, a real need to for, for a rebranding or re, a facelift, but also in terms of the cost of goods and just like looking at the unit yeah. um, economics and looking at how you actually make money, I'm sure this is obviously a shelf-stable product. Yeah. Is it a pretty good business then, the tin to fish business? It's a great business, but it's challenging. We started our manufacturing in North America. The canned fish infrastructure basically died out about yeah. 10 years ago completely. Like, there used to be a robust, you know this, but, like, a robust canning industry, like a sardine canning yeah. industry in, on the Northeast. Like, that feels like such a dream. It's so not the case. These days, there are probably, like, five canneries in mainland U.S. and probably, I don't know, a few more, 20 more in Alaska. Like, I, I really don't know. But there's very limited canning infrastructure in the U.S. So it's expensive in North America. Yeah. When and you go outside of North America, it the the cost of production drops substantially. And and you, you sometimes you, you have to go and, and do that. But I want to just get in, in a sense of the, the seafood consumption in America. It's lower than the rest of the world. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think there are a couple leading reasons for that. I think people in America, Americans are not familiar are not intimately familiar with how to cook seafood. I think it's intimidating for people to think about, you know, how do I how do I prepare this? Maybe salmon's easy, but then the rest, it's like, what the hell do I do with this right. fish? So, I mean, obviously one thing that is very exciting to me about canned fish is that the work is done by us. Or yeah, the so other. that's a great point because that's the unlock. It's like this fish is being made with a variety of flavor profiles and sauces. Um, and it certainly isn't only for aperitivo or appetizers, which though that I love that as well, but like you can cook with it. So I guess, um, how do you see our future? I mean, you must be banking on us, like, eating more seafood as a culture, right? I bank on people understanding that tin, that tin seafood makes it easier for them to eat more seafood, better seafood, more sustainable seafood, and broader varieties of seafood. Yeah. Like, how many people know how to cook a mackerel? Like, it's yeah. it's not that hard, but most people aren't doing it every, you know, every week. So, but can we make a gorgeous mackerel yeah. um, that they can just pop? straight out of the tin. So yes, I'm banking on, um, I'm banking on a couple things. I think I'm banking on, my feeling is that we skipped over seafood and went straight to alt proteins and we've seen a reckoning in that space. Yeah. And as that reckoning is like really coming to a fore, I think the seafood movement, the tin seafood movement in particular, is just like really on the rise. God bless Becca. I love that sentiment. <laughs> I agree fully. I think the alt proteins and, and we're talking about fake meat here. We're talking about those weird, um, you know, venture backed companies um, got a lot of a lot of attention. And then here you are, you know, trucking along. Just putting, putting great fish, fish in into a can. cans. Like, it's really, it's putting fish, some extra bread olive oil, some salt. Like, it's oh. really that easy. No processing. And it's like, why? Why are we not? Why is not every American eating more of this stuff? Let me ask you, what was the first product? What was the first, like, you knew you had to launch with this? The first product was smoked albacore tuna from the Pacific Northwest. Um, and that was a product of, I mean, when I was, me building, building supply chain in this category and, like, the evolution that our supply chain has been on, it's fantastically funny and interesting. <laughs> but, like, I found a fisherman, you know, when I was starting the company, I was like just trying to get in touch with anyone that knew anything about fishing. So 
got in touch with a fisherman in Northern California. He connected me to a cannery in Oregon, and we created this um, smoked albacore tuna, which has been our product line for, yeah, almost three years that, now. So that's an anchor. And, and just getting our listeners sense who have an experienced fishwife, um, you know, online or in, in great stores, um, what, are you, what are you selling right now? We are selling, so it's the albacore tuna, smoked rainbow trout, yeah. um, smoked salmon, smoked salmon with fly by jing Szechuan chili crisp. We just launched two gorgeous sardines. Yeah. Um, they're sourced from the only MSC certified fishery in uh, Europe, uh, the Cornish fishery, and then packed in Galicia. And then our anchovies, which are on summer hiatus from our website because they can't ship uh, in the high heat, but they're available in uh, across the country in uh, Whole Foods. Where are the anchovies coming from? The anchovies are coming from um, northern Spain, San Antonio, Spain. Amazing. Now, the name and the branding, uh, honestly, I love that you just started. Like, I come from this background. I knew that we could give the branding um, we could help tin fish in their branding category. So how did you kind of figure out this, this energy and mood? Because did it come to you in like fully formed, uh, in a formed way or did it take a while to figure out? Cause like, think I, I, I'm thinking at the time it's like millennial pink. It's like, like it's very austere. It's very minimal. And like fishwife is like not doing that. Yes, it was a very clear vision. Um, so, like, I created a mood board that was a compilation of, like, the classic Spanish-Portuguese tinfish, which are, you know, just, like, these beautiful, bold, primary colors, like, simple, very evocative graphics. Like, there might be a character, like a fisherman or a fishwife. Um, and then there were a couple brand inspirations. There was um, Cafe Bustelo was very mm-hmm. inspiring to me, um, Topo Chico. Those were kind of, like, the two main ones. So it was yeah. kind of this mix of, like, utilitarian but also very vibrant. And then Danny, our illustrator, Dan Bo Miller, I found through someone that I used to work with a lot in the music industry. And I had surveyed a bunch of illustrators and like was testing them with, you know, friends and family. But Dan Danbo was the clear winner. And like, thank God, because is he on staff now? He's on retainer um, and he's a part, you know, owns part of the company. Oh, cool. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, he should. He's, As he should. No, yeah. Totally agree. Yeah, he absolutely should. So. Yeah, and he's like my just partner in yeah. fucking crime. There you um, go. You, yeah. you have to end your launching new skis all the time. And it sounds like you you probably have an extreme demand for illustration from Danbo. He is working because yeah. it's the illust- it's the product, the packaging, but yep. also we're doing so much, you know, merch and yep. retail assets. And he's working his little tail off. But it's just been amazing to, like, watch his style evolve and his fishwife style. Like, he yep. can do so much. So versatile. But, um... But dude, he's 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 your guy. He's, yeah. is, and like, we didn't even talk about beer. You just launched yeah, a beer. Yes. We launched a beer. That was such a blessing. So <laughs> me and Danny, the one of the other um, brands that we were inspired by was McKellar, the beer company from yeah from Copenhagen. Remember. Yes. Yeah. So that was like those are kind of like our three major brand modern uh, inspirations. I love that. And we've just been like, oh man, we need to do a beer. But like, how is Fishwife gonna do a beer? And then Talea reached out to us and. So fun. I mean, yeah. it's like too much fun. So, what's the actual beer in the can it's or a, in the bottle? It's a smoked lager. It has like some lemon in it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's honestly, I'm trying it for the first time tomorrow. I love <laughs> I it. I haven't tried it yet. I, I love that you haven't even tried it. I mean, that that's like real talk about how fast these things move, and also just like the way a founder has to operate. You can't just like scrutinize every decision, oh, right? You cannot. I mean, like I trust these incredible yeah. people that are working at Talea. It's like. You need to know where to make a million decisions a day. You got to know where to pick your pick your battles. So, like, let's talk about 2021. Like, you've launched this product. You've sold a lot. You've, you've like, exploded on the scene. We, mm-hmm. we love you as a, as a founder. You know, you've got this incredible 
like this, these big ideas of disrupting food. But then in 2021, I read, and please correct me, mm-hmm. this is incorrect, but like your distributor, your, your cannery like said, mm-hmm. we can't make your, we can't can your fish. Yes. It was, cha- it was challenging. It was very challenging. <laughs> but you know, I mean, first of all, we all deal with that bullshit. I mean, yeah. all the time, every founder has dealt with that. And honestly, in the grand scheme of things, it was the first year in business. You know, it was just, I was the only employee, like we were scrappy, scrappy. And I think our audience knew that. So there was, we had, you know, forgiveness. Like people understand. They probably don't extend, don't understand the extent to which we're all just like hacking it together Mm -hmm. and like make, just hustling to make it work. But people understood it. Um, And thankfully I had started working with another cannery in Washington on a different product and we were able to very quickly transition. Oh, good. So you didn't lose too many accounts from that, that little bump in the road. At that point we were still 90% D to C. So it's also like, I think that's something very important for founders to keep in mind is like, when you're D2C, that stuff happens. It's fine. Like, it sucks because you're, you know, you want your consumer to trust you to be in stock. But it's not the same story as when you're in, you know, 500 Whole Foods. Right. And, like, the, the, the big difference is D2C is, like, you really have a control of what your demand is and you really can cannot kind of almost can to order. Mm-hmm. But then there's, like, the big Costco's of the world and the Whole Foods and the Albertsons who need, like, you know, what, a thousand? Oh, my gosh. What is that? What, what kind of units do you work in? How many units are they buying from us right now? I mean— I just deposited a check for their most recent order. And let me tell you, that was a lovely check to deposit. Yeah. I'm like, they're buying a shit ton of product. So before we moved into like mainstream grocery, we locked up our supply chain to make sure it was limitless scalability. Like, wow. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Now, when you say limitless scalability, this is a, a point I wanted to bring up in terms of the actual products in the ocean. We're talking about yep. uh, ocean or in the farms and uh, you, you work with both and mm-hmm. broad question. But how do you think about the actual fish and, and, and sustainability and and keeping, um, you know, everyone happy, your consumers, your retailers, and then, of course, the world and the oceans? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I, it's really important for me to be working with both farmed and, uh, you know, Farms and wild fisheries, first of all, because they're products you simply cannot usually get on a commercial basis from, uh, you know, wild sources like trout, for example. Mm -hmm. If you're eating trout from a grocery store, like 99.9, probably 100 percent of the time you're eating farm-raised Unless it's like the guy fly fishing in Jackson Hole for you. I mean. Which is dope. It's a great day for you. Great day for you. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, I think we work with, you know, we right now partner with MSC and ASC uh, and occasionally fair trade to um, work on developing our supply chains for the most part. So they have an amazing network of, you know, these incredible fisheries around the world or farms um, that they can put us in touch with. And then we start building supply chain from there. I see. Let me ask you about salmon and sardines. Mm-hmm. These are two products that, you know, came after the tuna. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's talk about each. Like, how do you think about launching a new species? Yeah. I mean, it's it's very different than tuna, yeah. I would imagine. I mean, we're constantly surveying our customers. Um, and one of the things that we're obviously surveying them about regularly is what species they're most excited about, what flavor, you know, what flavor preparations, what form factors. So, I mean, for example, the anchovies had been, which we launched in January, had been like not even close, the most high demand product from us. And lo and behold, they are our best selling skew and people just go absolutely cuckoo bananas for them, which I understand they're amazing. Um, But so sardines and salmon, they both came on pretty early in the business. I think sardines, you know, I started working on that right away at the beginning of the business. Mm -hmm. And I think the idea was just, 
It originally was actually supposed to be a sardine company. Um, that really? was The first thought was it's going to be a sardine company because sardines are this incredibly healthy, insanely high in calcium and protein, um, and they're just an undervalued, I don't know, undervalued fish, you know, low on the food chain, low mercury. And my perception at the time was sardines are the most sustainable option, which over time has become a much, much more nuanced yeah. understanding. Yeah. Um, and so that was... That was the original conceit. And also, like, when people think about tinfish and high-quality tinfish, like, they're thinking the symbolism is sardines. Yeah. So that was obvious. And then salmon, it's obviously top three most consumed, you know, seafood species. But usually not tinned. Not I mean, tinned. It's, it's, the tinned is, mm-hmm. like, extremely challenging. Mm-hmm. And Anna Hiesel, uh, who wrote an amazing book on tinfish and my former co-host, mm-hmm. um, had, was early in tinned salmon and, and was like, this is underrepresented. Yes. That was one of the first pieces that was written about Fishwife was, yeah. was Anna's piece about salmon. Yeah. And I think it's true. It's crazy how little, I mean, because there's canned, there's lovely, sustainable commodity um, wild-caught Alaskan salmon mm-hmm. widely available on the market. Actually very popular in the Southeast U.S. because it's used down there to make patties. It's like yeah. a very common recipe. Kind of blew my mind when I found that out. But high-quality smoked salmon, basically not available in any mainstream markets. Like Alaska, obviously, is the place where, that, you know, Alaska Pacific Northwest It's where that was born. But the smoked, I mean, obviously, we've taken such a smoked forward approach. And the reality is it's really hard to find canneries that have smokehouses, mm-hmm. especially outside of, like in Europe, where so much of the high-quality canned fish you know, the canning is happening, mm-hmm. they don't have smokehouses. So, like, all the Spanish canneries we work with, they don't have them. Yeah. It's just really It's just not the flavor profile it's we're, not we're used to when we're talking about European tin fish. And, and Americans, obviously, with um, our obsession with locks, <laughs> yes, you bacon, know, yep. <laughs> we love smoked salmon, but definitely not in canned form. So it is a bit of a paradox. It is. But it's obviously, it's, you know, it all, second or third top seller for us always. Yeah. Um, and people just go... It's so. I mean, it's so good. We've probably had our salmon. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah, no, it is. And 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 is Fly by Jing your salmon collab? Yep. I love yep. that. And product. it just it's never it has no plans to go away. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's so good. Okay, so where um what's the what's the roadmap? I mean, are we are we doing shellfish? I feel that will happen. Yes. Well, sorry. No, it won't. Because I look at your eyes and you're like, it, eh, Matt, you're not. I th- it will, but it's not on our direct roadmap right now. Like yeah. right now, we're really focused on getting a group of eight core SKUs that we're going to scale nationally into retail, and just from our surveying um, and just like the way that our product assortment fit together, it just did not make sense to get um, you know bivalves in there. But we will because I'm so obviously they're so amazing. They're like the, as far as I'm concerned, they're the only like always sustainable blanket Mm -hmm. statement like bivalves are absolutely incredible like climate solutions mussels baby exactly oysters you know it's just so i think we'll we'll do it but it probably will be like 20 maybe 2025 becky are you saying the is the demand just lower for 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 tinned shellfish than fish i think in the mains like right now what we're trying to do is grow our consumer base like we love we love our you know new york and la consumers but like that is not where this company is trying to end no. up like we want more people nationwide to be eating so let's talk about retail then a little bit do you have like a favorite retail channel that you're operating in right now or you might be operating in the future i i, I you're very candid and i love it and you're you're honest because some retailers are not as cool as others 
we've had such good experiences. Like we, I don't know, we've, I feel like we've just been lucky across the board. Our relationship with our distributor, which is like one of the big distributors that people often like have issues with. Mm-hmm. Um, we've just been lucky so far, you know, we're a young business, so I'm sure the, the shit. You, where are, so where you mentioned Whole Foods, is there another channel that you're selling out of that we might not know about? Yeah. So Whole Foods is our, you know, our biggest partner right now, obviously a very priority partner. We're in the Northwest, excuse me, we're in Southern California, um, the Northeast, the Southwest as of mm-hmm. this month in Northern California. Cool. Um, and then we're just in, re- we're in regional natural grocery stores across yeah. the country. So Moms, um, you know, Lassen's, Bristol Farm, Central Market, New Seasons, places like that. Yeah. And that's kind of like the, the roadmap for 2023 is like really expanding into those regional grocers. Have you had a Walmart conversation? I haven't. I'm waiting. The yeah. time is not yet, is not yet right, but... Like, I think you have to make sure the awareness is there before you go into a place like that. And it takes, you know, in my tiny little world, it feels like, oh, yeah, a lot of people know Fishwife. But, you know, on a national scale, like no one knows Fishwife. So (laughs) it's um, the real talk. I mean, it really is any brand. I mean, these baby brands that no one really knows about you until you're on like the price is right. Yes. Maybe you can be someday. (laughs) Maybe that's the plan. But yeah, so really working on building awareness right now um, so that when we go to bigger retailers, like the product, like we see at Whole Foods, the product is freaking flying off the shelf because we've built that consumer base. And in in the Whole Foods consumer base, a fair amount of people do know Fishwife. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's not all of America. So you see a real shift in our in our culture in cooking with uh, with tinned fish. You mm-hmm. see uh, through education, through media, obviously mm-hmm. doing stuff like this, but yeah. also just in general, um, maybe the demographic of America is changing. I don't know. what. How do you like – how do you think about the growth of this category because mm-hmm. you're going to need it f- to keep up, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I th- I do think like the continued diversification of American of American food tastes is definitely has a strong relationship with tinfish because what I found and what was one of the more surprising learnings in the first year of the business was that there were like two very 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 broad demographics of people that when I told them I was starting a canned fish company they got it and it was either tr- you know foodie people trendy people you know people were getting bone app etc or it was first generation Americans and it kind of was like country and culture agnostic they might have been from europe they might have been from asia or the middle east or the caribbean like it was just all over the world it became very clear that there was a much broader understanding of the use case for high quality tin fish and a much broader understanding of like the species so you know a lot of like you know my i grew up eating rice and sardines or i grew up eating anchovy sandwiches like shit that i had you know again growing up in as a I don't know, third generation, fourth generation American um, in New Hampshire. Like it was just can't. It was one of my favorite sardine dishes is from northern Thailand um, mm-hmm. at um, Sotam Dur in, in New York. Mm-hmm. I, I love it. It's like super fiery, spicy, Ugh. sweet. It's it's a great use of sardines. Wow. I You're going to have to write that down. It's like a me. salad. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> but, but it's a great point. And do you feel like just to follow up on that, that statement, because I've noticed as well with all the work we do at Taste mm-hmm. and we've written about tinned fish for a long time. Yeah. Um, is it a matter of the changing demographic or is it just tuna just did a huge disservice for tinned fish with the way Starkiss was presented, how not great it tasted? Yeah. Yeah. I I would say that it, that is sort of, <laughs> they did do a bit of a disservice because obviously that's, I mean, that's the work we have to undo as a, yeah, as a company now. Definitely. And, uh, you know, my comrades in high quality tin fish, we have to show people, you know, this isn't a, this isn't the cheapest kind of protein you can get. It's like the easiest to eat. It's the healthiest. It's one of the most sustainable. Um, but yeah, it's not, 
it's not commodity canned tuna. And like obviously the price jump that has to happen from like mm-hmm. two buck canned tuna to, you know, we're at market at like seven ninety nine. Um, it's a little leap that we have to get people to make. But I think like what you know, one of the things we're betting on is just like it's change in the use case. Like yep. instead of having to mash it with mayonnaise and put it on white bread, you can make a beautiful onigiri. You can put it over a rice bowl. You can put it over ramen or you can put it over a salad and serve it to people. Like or put you're it not, on a plate. Or put it on a goddamn plate. Yeah, and have it beautifully just set, sitting there. And, and really, it's it's just so interesting to hear you talk about this category and the growth. It's like um, it's like a small luxury. It's like we talk about coffee on the show. We talk about olive oil. Mm-hmm. Like it's not a lot of money. And and I think of like the macro brewing world, like we're spending nine, dollars $11 a bottle yeah. at a crappy bar, but we can't spend $7.99 on tin fish. That's like, going to like be so good for your body and your brain yeah. and, and is also going to take, you know, an hour out of cooking and cleanup. Yeah. So, yeah, I it's, mean, I obviously believe in it. <laughs> the sti- but it's just a stigma of certain things we just don't want to pay for. Yeah, totally. But that's why we created, you know, such a fun brand that like is just yeah. down down to earth you know people connect with like yeah that it has to be that way i think if in this space and space is similar where there's a stigma if you don't create like a very compelling brand it's just not gonna work i love meeting you it, it's like I, I now see the full picture of the brand because i think you know i'm thinking you're you live in la you've been there for like seven years and and this might be some like la shit but like this is like me like my critical um eye <laughs> yeah, but yeah like you're down like i think it's like this is about food this is about loving um, what you put in our bodies it's a love lo- delicious food and, and that's what you embody i love meeting you yeah i love meeting you i love this freaking podcast <laughs> <laughs> no i love it so last question um about the fish is like you mentioned a few like the onigiri is a great example but tell me how do you love to to cook with tin fish in your own personal kitchen yeah again i i truly can't cook like it's not that i can't cook it's just i at the time in my life probably my mid-20s when i was gonna maybe start getting good at cooking i started this company and i mean <laughs> i don't know what other fa- other founders are good at finding time to cook i am certainly not i respect them. the truth it's 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 real talk yeah real so talk. i have a rice cooker um and i have absolute shitloads of canned fish in my house yep. and so my life is you know making making some sushi rice uh, popping a tin of our smoked salmon making some bok choy or some you know spinach or what have you putting some sesame seeds on it yep. some flat edging and then that's like an amazing meal and yeah i mean i think it totally makes sense that i don't cook because i have a company that is supposed to make it easy yeah. for people to not cook like you don't all you need is a tin of fish a rice bowl i'm hearing that do you ever make it in sandwich form um uh a rice <laughs> no no sorry the tin the tinned fish and rice sorry yes i'm moving on from the rice bowl uh, i was like that sounds amazing uh, a rice sandwich yeah yes. they are amazing no but like just like do you put it on bread yes so my like lazy life is i live i'm sure you're familiar with cookbook it's yeah. like this gorgeous la east side baby yeah. yes i i am an east side baby i live in highland park right <laughs> yeah. next to the one so what i do like basically every day um when i go before i go to the office is i get their baguettes their rustic baguettes made um yeah they're just incredible some beautiful full tomatoes like obviously everyone loves a beautiful tomato and then just like some trout some of our trout some of our smoked salmon put on a baguette a little you know i love westbourne's avocado oil it's so good great product westbourne is great i gotta get her on one time yeah Yeah. she's she's she's, you gotta get her on she's incredible um well i love this Uh, i love these ideas um on this is taste we ask guests about their discerning taste so becca to close this interview here's a little rapid fire fast and furious taste check for you are you ready oh my gosh yes let's do it what's the best dessert best dessert ice cream and berries okay what berry (laughs) um raspberries harry's 
no, I can't. I can't afford that. <laughs> R- R- respect. Yeah, it can be any raspberries. Driscoll's okay. Let's go. The best fish. Trout, rainbow trout. Most underrated. So amazing. Oh, I just can't say enough. I, I totally agree. And we were just talking off mic about Hudson Valley, um, fish farm, beautiful rainbow trout coming out of there. Gorgeous. Your favorite Los Angeles restaurant right now? Um, La Cita in Chinatown is absolutely mind-blowing. The freaking, they have like a pork belly crackling thing. It's just, it's so good. And the wine's so good and the vibe is incredible and not too expensive. It's I like, haven't made it there. It's on my list for oh, sure. you gotta. Your favorite New York City restaurant right now? I feel like this is overdone, but like Servos is just so unbelievable. Like, yeah, and like they've been selling conservas and tin fish forever, or they were at least during the pandemic. Yeah, they're doing God's work. Like I think <laughs> I think people like that are actually incredible chefs that are showing people how an incredible chef uses tin fish. It's very powerful. Yeah, Servos is great. Great call there. It's definitely not overrated. I love that. I love that decision. Your favorite cookbook of all time? Um, I love Rebecca, Rebecca Pepler's books, all of her books. Like yep. it's very inspirational to me and how I think about the brand. We've worked together and yeah. I think she's just a genius. She's great. I've not had her on the show. This is a great reminder. She's to always out. in freaking Paris. She always is in Paris. <laughs> it's true. Okay, your favorite celebrity Instagram interaction over fish? Hillary Duff. Like, she is a fish wife, and she's so <laughs> cool. I just feel like Hillary Duff is the best celebrity. Yeah. No, definitely. So so let me ask you, do you seed celebrities with fish? I mean— Oh, yeah. Um, yes, but she actually found out about us. She went to a restaurant that serves us on menu, and yeah. she just posted it on her grid. Yeah. And it was like 9,000 people sent it to me, and she's just been so, so sweet. Yeah. So wow, it's a grid that actually stayed on the grid. She freaking gridded it. It wasn't it. an evaporating grid. No, it's there forever. But yes, I live, live to seed celebrities. Yeah, I, I would say, like, it's a really fun thing to gift as well. Obviously, the giftability of this product is is truly— um, I've done it myself. It's it's great. It's great. Um, a food you could obsess over like tinned fish. This is kind of weird, but just like so much fruit. Like I love fruit mm-hmm. and, and like nectarines. I just nectarines are my favorite food in the world. And then I think like a slightly more complex one is like olives. I just go bananas. Uh, I, it makes sense. It seems like a, an olive collab would be pretty interesting for Fishwife. I know. We got to figure that out. I feel you will. And the last one is your favorite sandwich of all time. What oh, my it? gosh. Okay. Well, throwing it back to cookbook. I eat their prosciutto Dan like every single day <laughs> on my way to WeWork, which is literally just butter and prosciutto on our baguette. And it is, it just doesn't get any better. The jambon bear, but oh. for the, the Italian Spanish version of it. Yes, yes. It's perfect. Oh. It's a perfect sandwich. Becca Milstein, thank you for joining This Is Taste. Thank you for having me. It was so much fun. Matt, how is Seattle? Wow. Let me just say, double wow. I I had never really been there. I've been to Portland seven times, eight times, L.A. many more, and had never spent time there. Well, L.A. to Seattle is pretty far, so I'm not shocked about that. But I, I, It's more just my West Coast travels have always been in those two cities, a little bit of SF here, but no Seattle. It was amazing. I was there... Um, for my friend Kurt's wedding, which was cool. He he got married. So congrats to Kurt. Him and Brett. Congrats, you guys. And also, fuck, I ate a lot of great food. Yeah, I'm going to Seattle for the first time in a couple weeks. So tell me your top and then I'll see how many I can eat in one day. I'm going to go over the list. It's relatively chronological. And I was there for three days and I hit some spots. I even drove up to Bellingham, which is about two hours through the beautiful forest. First stop was definitely a Renee Erickson restaurant. Mm-hmm. The Walrus and the Carpenter, well-regarded seafood, um, I would say counter uh, oyster bar uh, in kind of a, you know, 
a little bit of like a rougher, you know, industrial section of Seattle, though it's hard to tell. My God, it delivered fully. What a great meal. Do you have any like top things you ate? Was it all so good? No, there was definitely top things. I think what we had like our, our you know, 18, 24, whatever oysters, all West Coast. Beautiful, like the sizing, you know, West Coast is a little bit smaller and and, and felt really good about the, the texture with those. But really, I had a calamari epiphany. It was amazing. Two calamari epiphanies on this on this on the trip. Which cal- calamari epiphany would be a great band name. It on sounds a side note. Hey, Seattle, there you go, bands. And as an aside, I went to the Museum of Pop Culture, formerly known as the Seattle Music Experience. I saw Contact High, amazing. Okay, top recs. What was your calamari epiphany? Yeah, so I've had calamari in many forms. The way that Renee and her crew fries this calamari but adds levels of heat, acidity, and herb, meaning mint and chili flakes. And wow, it was like quasi-Thai in some ways, but I don't know exactly what was going on there. This is broad strokes. I love that dish so much. That sounds great. Tell me about what else you had. More things. I went to Mean Sandwich. Um, It has a little bit of a superiority burger vibe. I think BA wrote about them back in like 2018. Um, They do these like potato skin knots that are incredible. But really, I had another epiphany. I had a BLT epiphany. Epiphany is left and right, honestly. I know, really. It's all about like like finding wonder in the world. I had a BLT with steak tartare. Whoa. The beef was seasoned with yuzukosho. Uh, the bread choice was a griddled rye from, uh, I believe Seawolf Bakery in Seattle. Holy shit. What a great sandwich shop. That sounds crazy. I don't know if that should be allowed to be called a BLT if there's other (laughs) protein on it. I feel like that's a separate kind of sandwich, but. I feel like I'm not, I'm calling it a BLT even though it wasn't. Was there bacon and beef tartare? There was bacon on it. There was lettuce on it. There was tomato on it. And there was tartare on it. And it was. So it was a BBLT. Something like that. I loved it. Moving on, I went to Hood Famous, which Jordan Michaelman, I texted him, and he's he's from Tacoma, and so he knows the area, and he told me about this place, uh, really cool Filipino-owned coffee shop and cafe in the Publix building in Chinatown, down by the stadiums, Pandan and Ube iced lattes, Kalmansi bars, Lots of great pastries. Fulcrum Coffee, the great Pacific Northwest roaster that specializes in Southeast Asian varietals and and agriculture, does all the coffees. Fuck, it's really as advertised incredible. Damn, that, I feel like that's going to be the first place that I have to go. A calamansi bar, like a lemon bar, but yeah, with calamansi. Yeah, with calamansi. Ooh, I love it. A tart dessert, so I feel like that's speaking to me. Definitely a tart dessert. This is not the last mention of coffee. I will get to that. The next spot I went to, which we've, I think we've written about, or maybe Jordan told me about this place and he pitched it, but it's Watson's Corner, which I absolutely love. It's a modern Korean cafe. And I've had my share of Korean fried chicken cutlet sandwiches with like gojujan. It's like been done a lot. And, you know, most of the time it's pretty good. Holy cow, it was really good. I'm not going to say the word epiphany again, but it was very good. What made it better than the other ones you've had? Um, the frying technique plus the just juiciness of the breast was in- incredible. Really good chicken there. And also just the proportion with um, the just radish kimchi inside of it, like little shoestring style. Um, really worked well. And I just love the service there. Um, I'm hoping to go back to Watson's at some point. As an aside, I finally made it to Book Larder, the fine and famous and well-regarded cookbook store in Seattle. It's great. 
Yeah, I've heard great things about Book Larder. It's definitely on the top of my list when I go out to Seattle. Yeah, shout out to everyone at Book Larder. They love Cakezine, by the way. Yeah, they're, they've like sold us, I think, since the first issue. Yep. Um, I love them. They're great. They, they, they have Cakezine on. They have plenty of independent uh, magazines in the front rack. But really, what I like about the store is there's a lot of handcrafted elements, lots of recommendations in, in written form, which we love. They have a working kitchen in there for cooking classes and conversations. It's a square, which I think a lot of bookshops in New York aren't squares because many of our retail spaces are not squares here. Uh, and it's a beautiful, airy space. Um, and they cover the world of cookbooks, which we talk about consistently on the show. And it's not just the usual suspects. They have a lot of great imports, a little bit of used, a lot of just really cool things there. Love Book Larder. I love that. I love a bookstore that you walk in and you see all of the handwritten recommendations from the staff on the shelves. I feel like that's how I know that I'm in a, a safe space for book lovers. <laughs> right. And Book Larder seems to like really have that energy. Definitely has that energy. Moving on, I made it up to Bellingham. Again, two hours drive up, up you know, through the forest. Um, I hit up two spots there. I made my pilgrimage to Camber Coffee finally, and they did not disappoint. What did you What did you drink? So Camber is a is a roaster of high regard. You can find Camber at Drip. You can find them in in, in L.A. at several of the fine cafes, Dayglow, et cetera. But I've never actually been to their single. They have one cafe, and it's in the downtown Bellingham um, district. And I had a strawberry espresso drink, which is something that I never would order. Basically, a tiny little shot of espresso in a fine crystal, you know, chalice, like a tiny little espresso size with a little bit of strawberry cream on top. Wow. Yeah, really nice. Um, really nice people working there. And really, I've connected with them online. And I just love the roasting. I'm a subscriber. I've been a subscriber for years uh, for Camber. Um, and I also went to Estelle uh, in in Bellingham. Um, it's a restaurant run by James Zamori, a former New York chef. He also runs a very fine restaurant called Carnal. I've not been there, um, but exciting things happening in Bellingham. Sounds like the whole trip was really exciting. There's honestly. a few more notes, and I know we're like burning out, running out of time. And listener, you've already gotten here, so you're probably psyched about Seattle. Um, also, but just in case you're not, we have more. Just in case you're not, we have more. Also, shout out. Like, Death Cab for Cutie is from Bellingham. Wow. Yeah, you're not. I get a sense you're not like the biggest Death Cab for Cutie fan. Oh, no. I mean, I could sing a lot of Death Cab for Cutie. Okay, cool. I feel like um, the whole Seattle Pacific Northwest like sub pop vibe is so special. It really is. The music there is uh, is is great. And um, I love uh, I love uh, I love Death Cab. And it's nice to know they roamed those streets back in the day when they were founding. Two more places I want to mention. One is Hamdi, a modern Turkish restaurant. It opened last November, and it's run by a guy named Bert Goldal. Remember this name. Um, unbelievable Turkish food. Like, I, I've not had kebabs, lamb belly kebabs in this way. I've not—he does full lambs out in front of the restaurant— I had my friend Sam Harine hooked up the reservation, friend and collaborator on Koreatown. Thank you, Sam, for hooking up that res. We got the reservation. Beautiful food there. Is it like a more of a formal dining experience or kind of like casual kebab? It's a great question. It's it's more formal in terms of the he comes from Cafe Baloo and has like real, mm. you know, that background. The space there's a really cool like over eighteen uh, seat counter. Um, it's an open grill. So you're definitely experiencing the, the 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 heat and the fire out front. Um, but I love I love it. I just thought I, modern Turkish cuisine um, is is less represented in New York, and I was happy to see that there. 
Yeah, that sounds great. And the last but not least mention is St. Bread on the campus of University of Washington. UW, they call it. I, I attend the University of Wisconsin is also UW. Fine. My UW is probably not as cool, but um, our football team is better, so shouts. Um, okay. Wow, great bakery. Just, just a really great bakery there. Just Same. like uh, bread or more patisserie, kind of a mix? A little bit of both. Um, they had like um, a Kewpie mayo egg sandwich on with, you know, milk bread. But the cardamom bun, they had a Danish. I, I really liked this place. It was mentioned by many of the folks I hit up for Rex as a good spot. Maybe one said it was overrated. They were wrong. It was su- super rated and, and legitimately rated. Um, this is 72 hours in Seattle. I love this city. I've not been there before. I hope to return. Yeah, you're making me excited to go, and then maybe I'll get to report back on, on yeah. what I get to eat, too. I'd love to get your take on it as well. And and you're heading west. Uh, you're heading to L.A., Portland, and Seattle. Yeah, in that order. I'll be home in L.A. for a couple of weeks, so really trying to be strategic about where I'm going to eat when I'm out there. So far, my only plan is not a food plan, but to go see Poltergeist at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Oh, my God. They're doing the screening? like Yeah, of- like the Sinespa summer movie screenings that uh-huh. they do there. The weekend that I'm there is Poltergeist, and I just have to go because I love going to those movies, but I'm a huge scaredy cat, and seeing that in a cemetery is maybe <laughs> not my smartest move. But if I survive the strain of that, I'm sure I'll have a lot of good food things to report Oh, my gosh. On. I can't wait. You're going to be back in mid-September. We'll catch up then. We have a lot to catch up on. So thanks. Yeah, thanks for the rundown. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 